Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. When you think of Omaha, Nebraska, fine art is probably not one of the first things that crosses your mind. But that city's Jocelyn Art Museum has assembled one of the finest collections of art in the Midwest. And now, while the museum is closed for renovation and expansion, many of the highlights of their European art collection is traveling. Rembrandt to Monet, 500 years of European painting from the Jocelyn Art Museum, comes to Tulsa's Philbrook Art Museum, opening tomorrow through May 28th. The exhibit features over 50 works, ranging from the late medieval period through the end of the 19th century, featuring works by Titian, El Greco, Reynolds, Bouguereau, Jerome, and Renoir, along with the aforementioned titled artists. You'll also be able to meet the exhibit's curator, Taylor Acosta, the Jocelyn's chief curator, in a program in conversation with Philbrook curator Susan Green tomorrow morning at 1030 at the museum. And Susan Green joins us today to talk about the exhibit, which opens to the public tomorrow morning. Susan Green, welcome back to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Rich, I am so pleased to be here. This is such a great honor. This exhibit is really a a beautiful survey of European painting from uh, Omaha's Jocelyn Art Museum. What was your first impression upon seeing this particular collection? Exactly what you said. I was kind of in awe. These um, paintings span from around 1450 to 1900, and they are some of the best examples in the Midwest of paintings from across Europe. There's no other place that you might in in this area that you might see um, a, an incredible, huge gold ground devotional painting and um, a selection of impressionism, and then everything in between. So what's interesting with this exhibit is pretty much a chronological survey of European painting. And it's mostly from late medieval times till about the end of the 19th century when we sort of abandoned uh, national schools, if you will. We started going to Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, Expressionism, and there was all these isms. Isms all yeah. the way up. Mm-hmm. So this, this really covers to the point where Impressionists is moving towards Post-Impressionism. Absolutely. And what I find interesting about this is there are a lot of interesting stories about some of this art, which, you know, it looks old. And we don't know the context of the piece. And I think that's one of the things I, when I heard your gallery talk yesterday that was really interesting is learning some of the context of the pieces. And what, what's important to know about some of this academic art or uh, neoclassical art that doesn't really speak to us quickly, just, much like a, an impressionist absolutely. painting Absolutely. Just in the visual immediately grasping. One of the things I love about the works that we were able to borrow from Jocelyn is that each of these works has incredible stories behind them, and there you can just delve into the work there. So you can look at it. You know, there's like there's the surface story, so you can figure out what's going on in the image. Then you can look at these brushstrokes and imagine the artist actually creating the work and how did they make the depth or the darkness or the swooping clouds in the sky. And then you realize, wait a minute, somebody was purchasing this and who purchased it? And then why was it even made? So like the neoclassical works, there are these, um, there's this one large image of the death of Socrates. And they're all in, uh, you know, togas sort of in this theatrical but classical staged area. And you wonder, well, why in the um, 
around the time of the French Revolution. Why was neoclassical art, these men in togas, the classical stories from ancient Greek and Rome, why were those so important? And then you realize that there's also this political element, this philosophical element that um, people in uh, just before the French Revolution were looking back to ancient Greece and Rome to some of these heroes, you might say, who were um, essentially putting their life on the line for their beliefs and not kowtowing for the government. And in this case, it would translate to the king in, in for the, the French. At the so period. in the case of the death of Socrates, he is taking Hemlock mm-hmm. uh, in support of his ideals and not bowing to political pressure from Athens at the time. Exactly. And this is a metaphor for... French people to rise up against what they would call the tyranny and excesses of uh, the the roi. Exactly, exactly, perfectly said. And so that they then can look at the the, um, French revolutionaries, can look at this painting and say, ah, Socrates was willing to die for his beliefs, and we need to transfer that to our, um, our beliefs as well, our philosophies, and fight for the greater good. Um, and the egalite, fraternite, and liberté, so that we can all rise up and have a better society. So that was a really interesting, because that would be a picture I would glance at and move on. Yeah, yeah. And knowing that story is very important for a lot of these pieces from a long time ago. Some of them are portraits, they're, uh, and, and those all have their own subtle stories. The, the Rembrandt uh, from the title is another example of that. Absolutely. This incredible, large portrait by Rembrandt, so striking. It's a portrait of a man named um, Dirk van Os, and he was um, an official. We might call him something like a mayor or a um, governor of an area, and so a very important person, but there's also a backstory to that. So his father was one of the founders of the uh, Dutch East India Company. So he has wealth from the colonization of other places. So you, you kind of have to think about how the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic, were, were, was working within the world and how a person like Dirk van Os then was able to gain wealth to um, hire Rembrandt to paint his portrait, commission his portrait, and then what also he was doing in his area. And then um, this portrait, he, it's in his later years. He is, he's older, he's wearing um, a robe of an official. He has um, the staff of office, kind of his desk over to the side, but there's this weight about him and this kind of empathy that you can feel as you're looking at it, this kind of weight and contemplation in the in the image. And of course, Rembrandt is just a master at that inner uh, emotion, delving into the inner emotion of his subjects. But there's understanding what's the backstory for this person. And then the painting itself has a backstory, which is really fun. If you look kind of in raking light or over to the side of the painting, uh, near the frame and look across the surface of the uh, painting, you'll see um, some modulation in the varnish, and that shows that is kind of the hint. Um, there, in about 2010, experts in the field looked at the painting, and it had had at that point a large gold chain draped across Dirk van Os's um, chest. He had lace on his collar. He had ribbons. It was he was bedecked. And um, the scholars are like, this doesn't look quite right. 
and after fr some forensic analysis, as you might say, some x-rays and other things, they realized that those were much later additions. Someone, uh, maybe 100 years later after Rembrandt said, this does not show the power and weight of Dirk van Os. We must augment him and show that he is a much more powerful man. Let's put some gold chains on him. <laughs> So um, so then you can see that the painting itself, it's an image. And it now, has us, that been removed? So it has been removed. So it has mm -hmm. been, there's just that slight evidence you can see. Yeah, you have, to, you have to catch the, the light on the varnish just Absolutely. right to be able to see hints of that. Yeah. And it's, we're lucky that, of course, the Jocelyn conservators documented it. And in the catalog, which is available in the museum shop, the catalog, the catalog has an image of the, of the painting before the removal of the additions, the, those later additions. But um, it just, I love that a painting is a document, essentially, and it speaks about the, um, the artist. It speaks about the time. It speaks about the person maybe represented or the why the story is important, like Socrates. But then also, it existed for hundreds of years until it came to Jocelyn. And until it came to us. And it's really interesting because Rembrandt had a habit of doing that. He would get these commissions from these rich merchants and burghers, mm -hmm. and he would paint them in, in their view, unflattering light. Yes. And I think he was seeing them for who they were, not who they pretended to be and the image they conveyed. And so this was not the first uh, burger that he had uh, he had upset by the fact that you know, he painted them as he saw them. Absolutely. There, so it is definitely not a flattering. I mean, there are other artists that that those burgers could have chosen to paint them in a flattering way. But Rembrandt very specifically shows the wrinkles. He shows the kind of the droop. He shows the weight, the weight. of the person, yeah. the weight of the years of the person. My guest today is Susan Green. She's the associate curator at Philbrook Museum, and uh, she is working with the Jocelyn Curator to present From Rembrandt to Monet, 500 Years of European Painting from the Jocelyn Art Museum, which opens tomorrow at Philbrook and runs through May 28th. Mm -hmm. Well, this is very much a chronological survey as you walk around the galleries, and you begin with the medieval period. But I tell you, one of the ones that really caught my eye was uh, artists we know simply as the master of the Johnson Magdalene. Oh, yeah. And it's a beautiful Madonna and child, which, um, first of all, the colors are just so, I mean, they're just, boom, right in your face. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful image. It truly is. So it's the work that you see as you walk in the doors. And it is absolutely gorgeous. It's stunning. And it is um, a round painting. So we call those a tondo. So uh, it's a tondo in this also incredible frame. And I love, so... Visitors to the show who are familiar with Philbert Collection will recognize some of the images. There's Mary, there's Jesus, there's John the Baptist, there's other kind of angels around. But I really love when an artist works in an, what we might see now as an unusual shape, so that round uh, uh, structure format. So thinking about how the artist, as you said, we just know him as master of the Johnson Mag Magdalene, crafted the composition to really play off of this round sense. So your eye moves around the canvas, and it's uh, he kind of pulls you in by the way he puts the figures, and they kind of come around and lean into Mary and lean into Jesus. And it becomes this really intimate scene, as well as being absolutely gorgeous with um, these beautifully uh, detailed, almost jewel-like flowers and the landscape. And so this is one of the works that really 
draws you in. You can um, almost dive into the painting. And so many of these paintings reward close looking, so taking time with the work. And one thing um, several people have mentioned to me is that you can go to the Met or you can go to the Getty or you can go to all of, you know, big museums, but you feel like you have to kind of run from room to room. See everything. See yeah. everything and see those names like um, seeing Monet or Rembrandt. But who thinks, oh, I have to go see a Madonna by the Master of the Johnson Magdalene. This is not, you know, this maybe isn't the first thing that you'll think <laughs> of. But when you walk into a, a gallery like this, a collection like Jocelyn's, you're able to really focus on some of these truly jewel, jewel works that may just not have the, the name recognition. And it's interesting, you, you relate it to Phil Brooks' own Crest collection. There's another painting that in that early part of the show that also relates to another artist that you've collected in that, I guess it'd be early Renaissance, middle Renaissance period, and that's Bernardo, Bernardo Strozzi. And uh, the Philbrook picture is a gorgeous uh, a view of St. Francis in ecstasy. And in the show, there is a large painting, uh, Erminia Among the Shepherds, uh, again, a biblical subject. And the faces that Strozzi does is, you know, just depicting the, the human face and all of its you know, dramatic uh, views is, is just something to behold in, in this particular painting. It truly is. And it really is uh, such an honor to... So it's it's been really interesting to me. Um, you asked early on in the show what I was struck by the Jocelyn collection. Another thing, other than just the beauty of the collection and the depth of the collection, was also the connections to Philbrook's own collection. So we have works by uh, the same artists in our collection as Jocelyn does. We have the similar themes, similar subjects, and there's so many connections you can make with Phil Brooks' collection. So we've really tried to play with that and make sure that people go back and forth from the Villa Galleries into Helmreich. And our work by uh, Bernardo Strozzi, just as you mentioned, St. Francis and Next, see one of my favorite paintings, I must say. He's haloed with this light, and you can just see him communing with, um, with God in this image. And in the Jocelyn collection, there is a St. Francis by El Greco. And so you can see two different artists' version of St. Francis at Philbrook, but then you can also see two different versions, two different paintings by Bernardo Strozzi. And I absolutely agree with you. The Armenia large um, image, large painting is truly gorgeous. And so it's this woman. So there's also these really wonderful, strong women in this collection um, of paintings. So Armenia, she's a strong woman. She's also Muslim, which is kind of an interesting mm -hmm. note. So she is almost on a, she's on a crusade of her own. And um, she's off to find um, her, her great love, Tancred, but she gets waylaid. She meets some shepherds. And so there are these shepherds stretched out on, in the field and they, and essentially they, they say, come be with us, take a moment, take a breath. Take off your armor and be in this landscape, uh, be with the sheep, be with nature, and take a breath. And I think that is, um, I, f I feel that right now, you know, mm -hmm. we really should take a breath, be outside, and uh, commune with art, uh, commune with our friends. And so I think that that, um, that story, which isn't as well known today, it would have been, you know, very well known at the time. We, uh, it's not something that we read today, but it is just as impactful today. Another topic of a strong woman, although the way this is 
portrayed in this particular show, perhaps not the strongest woman, <laughs> is a, a, a Italian painter of Stanzioni doing Susanna and the Elders, yes. which, again, this is an artistic uh, story. This is a story that artists have been drawn to throughout the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century. They've been drawn by this story of old men <laughs> Absolutely. behaving Let's, badly behaving around badly. A, a, a beautiful young woman. Yes. <laughs> and so it, the story, Susanna and the Elders, um, a biblical story, is it was a nice excuse for artists and for art patrons. Usually Susanna is shown um, half-clothed, so it's an excuse to have a a naked woman, <laughs> uh, a nude in your home or in your palace, probably, and be able to view her in a. It's acceptable because it's a biblical story, but it is. It truly is an image of a really strong woman. So the story of Susanna, she is bathing, and two lecherous old men who are elders um, spy on her, and they. She refuses their advances. They then accuse her of adultery and it's one of the first it's a, a court case that comes before Daniel which is right. how it's in the Bible mm-hmm. but she wins her case she proves that she is innocent virtuous yeah. virtuous very mm-hmm. virtuous um, so this image that you mentioned this painting in the um, exhibition is truly gorgeous she is um, bathing her foot she's ready to um, wash her feet there's a fountain you see the two men kind of peeking over to the side but the colors and the shadows and the light are really incredible. Again, they just draw you in. And uh, so thinking about who was this person that commissioned this work or put it in their villa, um, who lived with this work, and what was it like at the time, I think is really interesting. As we talk about uh, from Rembrandt to Monet, my guest today is Susan Green, the curator at Philbrook Museum. And uh, there's so much we could just talk about that early section. There's mm-hmm. an incredible portrait by Titian. The Veronese is a, f- a favorite yes, of mine yeah. as well. But as we move forward, uh, you were talking about the beauty of the body and people who know the shepherdess. Oh, and, yes, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. Will be attracted by the William Adolph Bouguereau, which is the return of spring, which shows spring, uh, a beautiful young woman again, surrounded by little... Uh, cherubs. Yes. But what I love about it is, you know, one of the things Bukhara was very vain about was his ability to draw feet and hands. So true. And, so true. And uh, this painting, which is a very large scale painting, is nothing but feet and hands. <laughs> it is. They're just flitting around. So Spring, this young, um, very sensual woman, is a nude. She's standing up. She's the embodiment of spring. So she's waking up after a long winter's uh, rest. And there are, oh, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 cherubs flitting around her. And they're all kind of caressing her, fixing her hair. They're waking up themselves. And um, it is, it's like, it's flesh, it's fingers, it's toes, it's it's just sort of this beauty of the human body and the and uh, implied innocent human body. But of course, again, this is an excuse to look at a female nude. Um, but something else that I love about that painting is if you look at all of the cherubs, then these little putti, these little um, flying little youths, they all are in a different position. So. Each is turned in a slightly different way. You see a different uh, view of the face, of the legs, of the back. And thinking about an artist who is having to 
who needs to use a child, a young child, a toddler perhaps, as a model, and imagining what it would be like to try to sketch a toddler uh, in all of these different poses. So his mastery of the human body, whether it's um, an adult or a child, is truly incredible. Um, that work itself has its own story, its own backstory. It was painted by Bouguereau in the late 19th century. It then went on tour to the U.S. and became a sensation because, of course, it is very sensuous, a little risque. <laughs> and when it was in Omaha, actually, on this tour, a it was very popular. People were lining up, and a man came up and smashed at it with a chair mm. and tore the canvas. And this is an incredibly large painting, and he was trying to destroy it. He said so that uh, to protect women and children, which I think is very interesting. And then it was sent back to Bouguereau, who was able to repair it. And over the years, it's been conserved. Um, but that on the uh, reverse, you would be able to see this tear and the repairs. And it ends up in Omaha. And it ends up back because it was it was so scandalous. You know, of course, if trying to be um, this man trying to destroy it, actually, he did the reverse. He made it. A sensation because he gave it this other story. And um, so the people of Omaha said, we must bring it back to Omaha. And then it ended up that um, someone was able to purchase it and then later gave it to Jocelyn. We should mention some of the special uh, events around this exhibit. Yeah. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, for one, there'll be one tomorrow for the opening of the exhibit. You'll be having uh, the chief curator of the Jocelyn, uh, Taylor Acosta, who will come in and talk about the collection. What do you expect to hear from her tomorrow? She's incredible. She is not only brilliant. But she, she's also curated the show as well. Absolutely. This is her collection. So our conversation today or a gallery talk with me um, later on in the run of the show, it's just the little snippets. <laughs> so this is, I'm, you know, uh, hopefully helping people get excited about the show so that then they can hear from the real expert, which is Taylor Acosta. So this is her, these are her works. Um, this is her show. She put it together. So, and the Jocelyn is doing a renovation, which is the reason that these works are able to travel, and they were offered to us for this exhibition. Um, so it truly is a, a really rare treat, and this is not going to happen again. But the talk at on Saturday at 1030, we'll have some mimosas or some coffee, <laughs> and then we'll be able to really hear these engrossing stories from Taylor um, and learn more about um, her relationship with these paintings. And probably some of these artists that are representative have probably never been shown in Tulsa and maybe Absolutely. Oklahoma as well, Absolutely. for that matter. Uh, how many opportunities do you have to see two Monets, Renoir, Pissarro, Courbet, um, Doré, uh, Bouguereau, Titian, Jerome. Jerome. Yeah. Oh, Jerome. Exactly. These are beautiful Oriental, what they call Orientalists, yeah. uh, which is Middle Eastern uh, subject matter. Uh, one of them, Muezzin, a beautiful image there. And then the grief of the Pasha, which is uh, apparently a potentate of some sort, grieving over his dead tiger. His dead tiger. <laughs> which and is a little absurd. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> but but, it, but it is, a, it is a, just a, a beautiful, beautiful painting. It, and anyone who has a pet can relate to it. And maybe the, our pets are just a little bit smaller, yeah. um, a little less lethal, hopefully. But um, they're truly gorgeous. So this, in this academic style, um, Jerome is painting so naturalistically, and he is one of the artists that, um, that who travel around North Africa and the Middle East, um, made sketches, brought back objects that then he later used as props 
in his paintings. And so there is another interesting historic um, deep dive to think about European artists traveling to Africa and the Middle East or across the world and then appropriating images and trying to make these sort of romanticized images of the other. And so it's this really interesting conversation. Another painting in that area is a, a painting of Salome dancing. And there are elements that are Turkish and Persian and <laughs> North, you know. So it's sort of this amalgamation, very much appropriation and, mm-hmm. and I, uh, of this very sensual woman dancing before a crowd. So there's so, so much to dive into there. Absolutely so much. Yeah. Uh, when you get into the final room, obviously one of the big highlights is the Monet uh, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the Meadow, I think. This is really, I think it's like 1880s, late 1880s, really mature Monet style. And it is a, a gorgeous painting. And, of course, you've also set up a meadow out front where people can do <laughs> oh. selfies. But it is a, a gorgeous painting. Tons of flowers, beautiful little images of, I think it's children or yeah, young but- people, in this meadow, and it's just a, it's just really a, a wonderful picture. It truly is. He was painting en plein air in an island in the Seine, and you feel it spring. You feel, you feel like you can uh, um, hear the birds. There's bees buzzing around you. The clouds are moving by, and it is probably his, uh, at that point, life partner, later wife, Alice, and their separate children who are kind of traipsing through the meadow, and you just want to be in that meadow with them. And so um, we built, with the help of the French Bouquet, an incredible uh, community partner and flower shop here, they uh, have built this wonderful selfie wall that you can immerse yourself in the meadow and then take photos. Um, so that's a really fun element we were able to bring out um, into our kind of common spaces in the museum. Yeah, one other painting to talk about, which uh, I think this artist gets overlooked, but uh, Jules Breton, yeah. uh, this large canvas of, I believe it's called the Weed Pullers. Mm-hmm. Again, this is an artist that gets overlooked. He's sort of not really impressionistic. He's sort of in between the schools, but but a really, really wonderful painting. It's so beautiful. That is another. So I have so many favorites. (laughs) How can you have a favorite child? How can you have a favorite painting? But this is really one of my favorites. So um, the Weeders, and it is huge. It's very large, and it's this gorgeous sunset. And think think about how hard it would be to capture a sunset. And um, he's sort of, um, like you said, in this middle area, and he and some other artists in that section are thinking about how how to show true modern life, not just, um, say, workers in Athens and togas, but how do you show a true, a true worker, an agricultural worker at the period? And he had, um, the story is that he had been driving through this rural area of France, and he saw this scene. And he says that sometimes you experience something that just needs to be replicated on a canvas. And so there are women on their uh, on their hands and knees pulling weeds from a wheat field. So I think that's really interesting to think about in Oklahoma as yeah. well. So this hand labor, the work of the these female um, agricultural workers, but you are immersed again in the scene. It's another painting to that really uh, rewards this close looking. Wonderful show. Opens Saturday at Philbrook Museum of Art from Rembrandt to Monet. Susan, thanks very much for Thank joining us. Thank you so much, Rich. Susan Green is Associate Curator at Philbrook Museum, who is also 
presenting Rembrandt to Monet, 500 Years of European Painting from the Jocelyn Art Museum, which opens tomorrow and runs through May 28th at Philbrook Museum of Art. She'll also be speaking in a special event with Taylor Acosta, the chief curator of the Jocelyn Art Museum and the curator for this exhibit. They'll be speaking tomorrow morning at the museum at 10.30 a.m. There's several other special programs during the run of the exhibition. You can learn more about the exhibit and those special programs at philbrook.org. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.